0: Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. I'd like to direct your attention to Ephesians 5 this morning as we uh, begin to look into God's Word. Ephesians 5, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 of this chapter in just a moment, but we'll start in Ephesians uh, 5. Just have your Bibles ready. Um, I did not mention it last week. I try not to let the occasion pass by, but last Saturday was the 38th anniversary of our congregation. The first meeting of the Grace Baptist Church of Millersville was on May 12, 1974. Uh, this church was planted here by Grace Baptist Church of Lancaster. Uh, actually, there was another congregation that built this building, the portion of the building that we're in. It was built in the middle of the 60s uh, by Calvary Baptist Church. We actually have some people who are a part of our congregation who were members of Calvary Baptist Church. They built this building. The church closed that congregation in the early 1970s. Uh, you should talk to some of them about what happened. It's, it's a sad and, um, tragically amusing at times story. The uh, that church closed and Grace Baptist Church of Lancaster, the pastor of the deacons, wanted to make sure that there was still gospel preaching going on in this Location, especially with its proximity to the university. I heard, I don't know if this is true or not, but the pastor of the Grace Baptist Church of Lancaster was concerned that this building would be purchased and turned into a dance hall, which is about the worst thing that a Baptist pastor could imagine <laughs> any building being used for. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, uh, would you indulge me for a minute? We've done this before. But we're going to do it again. I'd like everybody to stand. Would you stand, please, for with me this morning, if you would, please? And I want you, while you're standing, I want you to think about how long you have been a part of our congregation. All right. Think how many years have you been here as part of this church? All right. Good. Now, um, if you're visiting today, and today is your first day here in the church, we're really glad that you're here. We hope you come back again and you can sit down. All right? Okay, good. If you uh, have become uh, a part of our church, if you've been uh, here for less than a year, less than one year, go ahead and sit down. Okay, good. Less than two years. Less than two years. Okay, we lose a couple more. We're going to jump here a little bit more. Less than five years. Less than five years. Okay, good. Um, less than 10 years. All right, good. Uh, <laughs> this is not an opportunity for pride, okay? Uh, <laughs> less than 15 years, less than 15 years. I would have to sit down at this point in time. So everybody here who is standing had some sort of personal acquaintanceship with one of my predecessors, our interim Bob Smith or our founding pastor, Herb Samworth. That's good. Okay. If you've been part of a Grace for less than 20 years, go ahead and sit down. All right. Less than 25 years. Less than 25 years. Okay, so everybody standing here has been around these parts since at least 1987. All right, good. Uh, Less than 30 years. All right, good. Less than 35 years. Okay, this puts us at about 1977. So the people standing here, uh, Mel, you should be standing, I think. Mel, you should be standing still. All right. Yeah, yeah. What is this? Mel says, (laughs) okay. Mel's been a part of the church for 72 years. He's 39. He just wants everybody to know that. That's the problem. You're 18. Okay, sorry. 18 in dog years. Okay, so, um, all right. <laughs> oh, terrible. Okay, now, here's what I want you to Listen carefully, all right? If you were here on May 12, 1974, or if you were here the first day, I want you to remain standing. Everybody else, you can sit down. All right. Good. Excellent. A few people... ...who have been here a long time. If Dot Hess and her family were here, they're at a family wedding this weekend. If they were here, they'd be standing too. So, thank you. You may be seated. Appreciate it very much. (laughs) You are surrounded, if you can tell. (laughs) Uh, You are surrounded, you can tell. If you've been here for uh, a short period of time, you are surrounded by people who have uh, given their lives away for this body of believers... Um, and they have many memories, and they've heard and seen a lot of things. W- one of the joys that I have as a pastor of this congregation is I hear repeatedly from people who are visitors or people who are relatively new to the congregation, I hear repeatedly from them how much they appreciate the warmth and love of our congregation. Um, uh, outsiders and new insiders tell me that, that, that they appreciate how much we care for our, each other. I know our church is not perfect, and, and I'm not telling you this to boast. We're not an elite group of followers of Jesus. But this is one of the evidences of the grace of God in our lives. More than just being a product of the size that we are, uh, God's grace is evident. We're thankful to Him for His kindness that manifests itself in, in the, uh, phone calls and the meals and the prayers and the cards and the gifts and the rides and the visits and the lessons and, and the labors. Things that multiply beyond my ability to notice or manage or uh, see and appreciate. All these things, evidence of God's grace in in how we show love to one another. Uh, This particularly encourages me as a pastor because uh, love among the members of the congregation is one of the things that mattered most to our Lord and to the apostles when he was talking about the health of uh, his followers. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, love. And in many ways, this is an easy task that I have before me. I don't have to dance this morning around conflicts here. I, I don't have to worry about uh, ugly confrontations that are going on in the church. And in many ways, this is an easy moment, maybe not though completely. And what makes it not easy is that love is one of the most difficult subjects to think about and to understand clearly. I think what makes it a challenge in this particular cultural moment in which we find ourselves is that that there feels like in our world in which we live that there is a tension between what some people generically call values and uh love or uh, morality, good decisions, right decisions and love. Or if I can even use a biblical word here, um holiness and love tension we feel and the reason there's this tension is because the prevailing view is that love is the ultimate value and love is the ultimate uh, uh, priority and there is no boundaries or there should be no boundaries in love there shouldn't be standards holiness that interferes with love and if you love me You'll accept me. You'll affirm me. You'll not question me or challenge me. Recently, uh, Vice President Biden sparked a new discussion about uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, And eventually, you've been following the news, it led to the President himself coming out and endorsing same-sex marriage. And Biden, uh, Vice President Biden, in this discussion, said that everybody understands that the marriage question, it's all about love and who you love, and the laws of the land ought not to interfere with love. It's all about who you love. This phrase, it's all about love, is, in this issue, grossly simplistic and inane. In fact, it's so vacuous that even Vice President Biden doesn't really believe that. He he said that, but that's not even really what he believes. No thinking person can believe that it's just a question of love. There's this this debate, this tension we feel in our culture between truth, morality, holiness, and love. We we feel this. Now, the national discussion about same-sex marriage should interest you. We care about the debate because marriage was created by God and He establishes how it's supposed to function. That is our conviction. But... I imagine that what strikes you deeper in your soul than uh, whether or not the North Carolinians added it to their constitution, what what strikes you deeper is what love looks like when it feels like your husband has grown porcupine quills and the closer you get to him, the worse it hurts. Maybe the the question of love uh, uh, is deeper when, when you think about how you draw lines when your adult children are making choices that you know are ruinous and that cause you grief upon grief. Or how you respond when your experience of our church is not love, but coldness and neglect. I I, I get told this by people as they walk out the door. I'm leaving because of the phone calls I didn't receive or the, the cards I didn't get or the... Greetings in the foyer that never came to me. What does love do then? Our understanding of love always needs refining. It it always needs uh, work. We're always tempted to swing back and forth between sentimentalism and and self righteous legalistic um, exclusionism. Holy love is is hard to maintain. What I want to do this morning from Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 is I want to talk to you about refining our love for one another. I want to talk to you about two ways in which our love should be refined. What I want to do is I want to read these verses, I want to introduce these verses, and then we're going to talk about refining our love. So, Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2, look what God's Word says. Paul writes these words, "...be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children... And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, if you take these verses and you put them under the microscope and you look at them carefully, you would conclude or you would see here that there are two commands, two imperatives in these verses. Be imitators of God and live a life of love. Those are the two commands. Two things Paul wants the people to do. Now, I think the second, by the context, the second command tells us how to do the first command. Be imitators of God. How? By living a life of love. We're made in God's image, and there are ways in which we're to image God. Uh, One of the ways is holiness, right? uh, Moses told the Israelites. God told Moses to tell the Israelites. And Peter tells us, Be holy, God says, For I am holy. So be holy, we're imitate, mimic God in holiness. And here, we're supposed to mimic or imitate God in love. Now, that probably is not something that surprises you too much. Oh, Christians, you're going to talk about love. How shocking. But what interests me up here about this passage and what can help refine us in our love for one another is these two supplementing, two explanatory phrases in the passage. And and here's what I want you to see. Two things. First, I want you to see in this passage the gospel-centered motivation for our love. The gospel-centered motivation for our love. The reason that we're supposed to imitate God and obey this command by living a life of love is because we are dearly loved children. The imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Let me explain what this means and why it matters. This is another place in the Bible where the command that the apostle gives or the Bible gives to us follows on a description of our identity, who we are. This is actually the way that the gospel works in someone's life. It calls us to live a new life based on our new identity. We are dearly loved children in God's family, so we obey. We do not obey in order to become dearly loved children. We do not obey so that we can be accepted. We do not love so that, we do not obey so that God will love us. We are loved. We are accepted in Christ. We are dearly loved children, and thus we obey. Uh, the, the resources, the foundation, the basis for this new life flows from our identity in Christ. On the basis of what God has done for us through Christ, we live new lives. That's the way the Gospel always works. It's, this principle is easy to illustrate, but it's hard to apply and live out. Let me tell you why. Well, let me illustrate it first. It's easy to illustrate because you're about to see before your eyes uh, three examples of what this this verse is talking about, something very similar to it. One example uh, almost immediately, and two, I hope, very soon. You have been hearing over and over again in our church about the three couples that are adopting. Uh, We we talk about this constantly and and praying for them and supporting them. It's it's wonderful. Um, Elora is is here in the States. She's home now. She came from Africa with ear infections and all sorts of stuff. So she's home with her bugs and and her parents. But uh, she's here. So we'll use her as as an illustration. Uh, We'll meet her soon. That'll be great. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, I don't know what Alora's life was like in the orphanage in which she lived. I don't know what time she got up. I don't know what she wore. I don't know what she ate. I don't know how she spent her time. But I know now she is one of Anthony and Carrie's dearly loved children. Uh, and because she's one of their dearly loved children, she's going to be a Petersheim girl. She's going to rise with the Petersheims. She's going to dress like the Petersheims, which means she'll be cute, right? Okay. She's going to uh, um, eat like the Petersheims. She's going to play like the Petersheims. Before the adoption, Alora, and she didn't even have the name Alora. But before the adoption, she had no reason to be like the Peter Shimes, and Anthony and Carrie had no authority over her at all. But now she is a dearly loved child, and because she's a dearly loved child, her life is different. Now, our prayer is that, that we'll be soon saying the same thing about a Willoughby baby and a Flannery baby, right? But but you see here, if you are in Christ, you are a dearly loved child. And so now you live a life of love. Again, our motivation, the resources, the foundation on which we love is our own status as dearly loved children. That's easy to illustrate. That's hard to apply and live out. Here's why it's hard to apply. What makes that hard is that this is not the normal way in which we motivate ourselves or others. Normally, we motivate ourselves or others on the basis of guilt or shame or pride. Uh, do you ever have the opportunity to speak to someone uh, about uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ and the door is wide open? I mean, you're sitting with friends at work at, at lunch or uh, uh, your cousin says something to you. You just The door is wide open. They say, so, I mean, they lay it out for you. What do you think you have to do in order to go to heaven? I mean, the door is wide open and you flub your way through it. You mumble something. You don't say the gospel clearly at all and you just you just kind of fail. And you walk away from that circumstance and you say to yourself, oh, I I really blew that. If I were a real Christian, I wouldn't be so afraid. I really messed that up. I'm going to do better next time. The next time I'm going to do better because I just really blew that and I feel so bad. Or uh, if I were a real Christian, if my (laughs) faith... If, my faith, if I really loved Jesus, I wouldn't struggle with this sin like I do. Or, I feel so bad about what I did that I promised God I'm not going to miss church for the next four months because I really blew it and, and I'm going to give extra money in the offering. Do you ever hear yourself saying to yourself, what is wrong with you? Are you too stupid to learn? Uh, Are you going to continue messing up and continue disappointing God for the rest of your life? God's probably looking down at you right now and saying, man, I shouldn't have saved that one. (laughs) Do you ever have thoughts like that going through your mind? Do Do you ever try to motivate your kids by saying to them, do you know you really hurt me when you do bad things like that? Or, do you want to make me sad? Guilt, shame, those are the motivation factors behind a lot of appeals that we hear to uh, give money to poverty-stricken nations. You rich American, look at these poor African kids. Don't you feel bad about how much you have and how much they don't have, so you should get some money to them. Do do you know what motivates me? Uh, My duty. My duty, which is actually a form of pride, which is really the flip side of shame. I'm a good pastor. I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. And this is what good pastors and good husbands and good fathers and good Christians do. And I am one of those, so I'm gonna do these good things. Do you ever hear voices like that in your head? What is surprising is that Paul here is using positive motivation. He's not guilting them. He's not appealing to their pride. He's not appealing to their shame. He's, he's very positively moving them into a life of love. And, and he's very soon going to get to some really serious sins and he uses love to, to get them out of those serious sins. We are culturally attuned to hearing love as a free pass. Man, if you're loved, you can do whatever you want. That's not what Paul is doing here. He is saying, Paul is saying, you are loved. You are loved by God. Pursue holiness because you are loved. Paul believes that if you really know, if you really understand the full extent of the deep love of God for you, it will keep you from sin. Do you think Paul's right about that? What does your experience tell you? When you are sitting in front of your computer and you're about to follow certain links to certain sites, uh, does does serious reflection on God's love keep you from following those links? What about when you see somebody doing something that you, you think is foolish or gauche or tacky? And you're inclined to sit in judgment on them and question their parentage and their IQ, and, and, and you have all kinds of ideas about what's wrong with them. Is God's love enough to keep you charitable in your thoughts about the people that you see around you? This week, I read a letter that Philip Henry wrote to his son, Matthew Henry. Some of you have Matthew Henry commentaries on your shelf. Well, his father Philip, when Matthew was married, Philip Henry wrote a letter to his son, and one of the lines that he he said to them uh, about his marriage to this young groom and young bride, uh, when one of you comes home with fire, the other should bring water. Isn't that a great image? If your spouse brings home a fiery disposition or fiery words or a fiery temper, is knowing God's love is being enraptured with the love of God, delighting in God's love, enough for you to bring water? Will God's love keep you from gossiping in the foyer after the service, especially after you hear something really salacious and really shocking? Will it be God's love for you that will keep your mouth closed? Hmm... Paul expected that it would, as dearly loved children, or because you are dearly loved children, live a life of love. Is that the way God's love works in your life? (laughs) I have good news for you if it doesn't. Don't don't be discouraged by that. Don't be discouraged, but don't be content with that situation. Uh, This is not something that Paul expected the Ephesians to get naturally. That's why he spent the first three chapters of his book, and in particular the first three paragraphs, reminding them of the immense magnitude of God's love. They were Christians, they knew the gospel, they were members of the body of Christ, they knew they were loved by God through Jesus, and still Paul has to remind them about God's rich love. They still need to hear this over and over and over again. In uh, Psalm 90, Moses prays to God and he says, God, satisfy me with your love, with your unfailing love in the morning. God, I want your love to be at work in my life so that it changes me. Uh, Paul expected that. Paul wanted me to say, to walk through life and say, the God who loves me warned me against this website or warned me against these words, or warned me against this attitude, and if He loves me so, He has my best at heart, and I will say no to those things. And the extent to which that does not happen, the extent to which that does not work in your life, is the extent to which you must heed the Bible's admonition to think often and think carefully about the Gospel. We have to work at this. We pursue cultivating in our lives reminders of the extent of the love of God for us. Here's a sign of of actually how naturally we are disconnected from God and one of the ways that the gospel transforms our minds. Our disconnect is evident in how little we think of or how little we rely on or how little we delight in God's love. And the transformation that the Gospel brings in our lives is evident in how our appreciation of and our joy in God's love grows. You think about the Gospel, and as you think about the Gospel, things take on their proper size, their proper shape in your life. Uh, if, If Paul expects our knowledge of God's love to change us, and it's not then we have to begin working at reminding ourselves repeatedly of the magnitude of God's love. Are you cultivating that clearer vision in your life? Are you working at this? Are you working to see God's uh, prayer, Moses' prayer, worked out, Oh, that you would satisfy me with love, with your unfailing love in the morning? There's lots of ways to do this. Let me suggest uh, something here for you. Can you make it your goal that you're going to remind everyone in your house at least every day uh, of, of the glory of the love of God for us, the God, the Father, through Jesus Christ? Is there a way that you can remind everybody in your family at least once, everybody in your house at least once of the magnitude of God's love? A verse from the Bible, a note, a comment. Uh, men, do your wife, does your, your wife hear from you reminders of God's love? Here's another suggestion. Try, try memorizing some worthwhile song lyrics. We, um, uh, I, and It's old language. It sounds sentimental. It's not. But, but think about this. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in His arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms or uh, one of my favorite songs, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. The second verse says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the Word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. There is glory in every day, thinking about the fact that the great God, the great God who with the word of his mouth called the world into existence the great God who we have ignored and belittled, the God we have sought to replace by establishing our own sovereignty, the God to whom we were all accountable, that God in love and at the cost of His own Son paid the penalty we owe so that we by turning to Him and believing might have life and forgiveness. There is glory and it is worth thinking about over and over and over again. (laughs) Can I, can I confess my frustration to you? I, I want you to love the gospel. I want you to see the gospel in all of its glory and its beauty and its wonder. And I try to talk about it as much as possible in as many ways as possible so that you can see it in its beauteous uh, glory. But the glory of the message far surpasses my ability to describe It far surpasses any song that we can sing, any sermon that you will preach, any way that I can illustrate it. It is an incredible message. It is so incredible, in fact, that if one of the glorious angels of heaven were to stand in front of us, we would be tempted to worship him. We would fall in fear. And an angel like that, Peter tells us, longs to look into this message. It is that glorious and that good. It's stunning, even to them. Our love is refined for one another because we don't love one another out of guilt or out of shame or out of duty, because that's what good Christians do, and I'm a good Christian. We love one another because we are dearly loved children. Now, here's another way in which these verses help refine our love for one another. Uh, Notice we've talked about gospel-centered motivation. Now notice here, secondly, the gospel-centered model for our love. The gospel-centered model for our love. Verse 2 says, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, Paul could have put a period there and ended the sentence and it would have made a perfect sense. He continues though, we're going to talk about his continuation forthwith gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, as a pious Jew, an expert in the Hebrew Scriptures, Paul here in this phrase, this last phrase, is reflecting here on the wonder of Christ's death by connecting it to the Old Testament sacrifices. This is a little bit of a tangent here, but but it's important for helping us see how Christians read the Old Testament. Uh, The books of Exodus and Leviticus provide us with an exact and specific regimen of sacrifices. The Israelites were to offer daily, weekly, monthly, annual sacrifices. And they were to offer these sacrifices so that they might commune with a holy God. In their sinful condition, the blood of animals covered their sinfulness so that they could be in holy God's presence. Uh, the sacrificed animals were brought into the Old Testament. They were slain. They were skinned. They were cut apart. And the meat was roasted on an altar. And all day at the temple in Jerusalem, the air was filled with the smell of roasting meat. Can you imagine that? How delicious that smell. We, sometimes we leave the service and the fellowship committee is preparing a birthday luncheon at the back of the church. People don't say hi to me. They walk out and they say, What's that smell? All day long, this roasting meat uh, on, on the altar. Uh, this wonder, Do you see why the, over and over again the Bible uses the term fragrant offerings? Oh, that must have smelled so good. But these animals, they had to be offered over and over and over again, uh, even though they smelled wonderful, because the animals were not sufficient to permanently make it possible for sinful human beings to commune with the Holy God. But Jesus Christ is offering Himself He presented to God the final, the sweetest smelling sacrifice of all. His death on the cross satisfied all of God's demands and in Him we have perfect access to a holy God. And that sacrificial offering is our model. Christ's love moves us to love one another with the sweet, sweet smell of sacrificial love. Our love for one another is not sentimental. It's not based merely on our human affinity. It is sacrificial. It always costs to love someone. Martin Luther said, if we are to truly imitate Christ, then we must also in some measure suffer for the sins of others. Your love will cost you something. What price are you paying for the sake of loving the brothers and sisters at our church? Maybe your service costs you time. Our Awana leaders, our Sunday school teachers, some of our uh, junior junior church teachers are looking forward to rest over the summer because they give time, a lot of time, to preparing and teaching and, and, and getting ready. Um, our elders, when they walk into the building, we will meet Thursday night. Our elders, they come in at 7 o'clock. They know that they're going to be here for a long time because we're going to spend time praying and talking about how we can meet the needs of people in the congregation. And it's going to be a long meeting. A sacrifice of time, it costs. Or, or money. It's going to cost you money to love someone. It's going to cost you uh, money because you buy food or you provide gas or you spend money on gifts. Maybe your love for other people costs you energy. Huh. Do you remember times I have asked you, we haven't done this in a while, but uh, occasionally in the, towards the beginning of our service, I have you go and talk to somebody else in the room and you have to ask them those three questions and then we pray for one another. Um, we don't do that very often uh, because of all the hate mail about it I used to get. Um, uh, but uh, I always, when we do that, uh, I talk about extroverts and introverts and extroverts, are, they love this. And if you extroverts, you set them loose, they don't stop talking. That's the sad part. They, they get energy from talking to other people. It's the thrill of their life. Introverts, oh. T- talking to other people for introverts takes energy. It t- you have to overcome the inertia. It's wearying. Um, talking to people tires me out. It takes energy to love other people. Christian love has a sacrificial smell to it. It's true. But I appreciate what C.S. Lewis said. Listen listen to what he said. Uh, He takes us even one step further in the sacrificial love. Listen. He said, If you asked 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, Unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, Love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive, and this is more than just philosophical importance. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them for ourselves. As if our abstinence and not their happiness was the human, was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The point is their happiness. So I spend my energy and I spend my time and I spend my money so that other people might be happy in Christ. Why do we love one another if it costs us? You know the answer. You know what I'm going to say, right? It's the overflow of the love that we have received from God in Jesus Christ. Ephesians, I've suggested to you we could subtitle this book. We're filled to overflowing. Filled to overflowing with the grace of God, with the love of God. Mark Thompson is a pastor and he lives in Minnesota. And In October of 1988, somebody broke into his house and, and he viciously attacked him. And one of the, the consequences of his recovery is that he wasn't able to watch his son Chris run in the state cross-country championship that fall. So Pastor Thompson called his brother Merv. Mark called Merv and he said, Merv, I want you to go to the race in my place. I can't be there to see Chris run, so I want you there at the beginning of the race. You've got to holler a lot. Then at the end, you've got to really cheer loudly. And he said to his brother, and I want you to make your voice sound like mine. (laughs) That's what Christ wants you to do. He wants your voice to sound just like his. He wants the way you touch other people to be like the way that He touches people. We think about and we sing and we speak of the Gospel and it makes our lives smell like Jesus with that sweet aroma of sacrificial love. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come into Your presence this morning and we are glad to do so through Jesus Christ, He who is the fragrant offering, the ultimately satisfying fragrant offering. Father, we have many reasons to give you thanks for the grace of God that is uh, evident in our congregation, in our care for one another. Uh, This week, people were fed and rides were given, babies were changed, Uh, weeds were pulled and mulch was spread and... Prayers were offered and encouragement was given and notes were written and phone calls were made and all these things, lessons were prepared. All these things multiply, multiply, evidence of your kindness in our church. God, we we pray, Father, that you would refine our love, that it would be driven more and more by our deep appreciation for the fact that we are dearly loved children change us so that we would not be satisfied with our unselfishness, but that we would be satisfied with the joy of others that we bring by the love that costs us. Father, we want to honor Jesus Christ in this way. We, we want... Uh, the the message of Christ to be evident in our lives so that the people around us who are disconnected from Christ would, would, would see and they too would become followers of Christ and you would fill our church with people who are discovering Christ anew. We want that to be true as your kindness and your grace overflows in our lives. That's good news. Change us because we are dearly loved children, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.